Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get into today's episode, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, you guys, for today's case, today we are diving in to an old unsolved case. This is one that has a lot of theories. It is one that has way more questions than it does answers. And it is one that I am very, very interested to hear what you have to think about it because truthfully, I don't know where I lie in this case. So as you can tell by the title, today we are talking about the disappearance of the Sodder children. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Now, to understand what happened to the Sodder children, we initially need to start out with looking at who the Sodder family was. The Sodder family consists of husband and wife, George and Jenny Sodder, as well as their 10 children. They had five girls and five boys. Now, the father, George Sauter, was born in Italy in 1895, and he immigrated to the United States when he was 13 years old with his older brother. However, upon arrival, his older brother decided to leave the U.S. right when they got here, leaving George on his own. Now, eventually, George got into working in the railroad industry. He started working on railroads in Pennsylvania, but before moving to Smithers, West Virginia to work as a driver and soon would start his own trucking company. And it was while he was living in Smithers that George met Jenny Cipriani, who had also immigrated from Italy, and the two began dating and eventually got married and had their 10 children. Now, the Sodders, after getting married, ended up moving to Fayetteville, West Virginia and lived in a two-story home that was about two miles north of town. Now, the time frame that we are looking at here is around 1945. So the Sauter's oldest son at this time had actually been drafted into the army and was fighting overseas. However, the rest of the nine children were living at home. Now, while they were raising their children, Jenny was a stay-at-home mom and George's business was doing very, very well. And things seemed to be going smoothly for the family. Now, something to know about Fayetteville, West Virginia at the time frame that we are looking at is that Fayetteville had a strong population of Italian immigrants, which was part of the reason it was so appealing for George and Jenny. Now, something to know about George is that he was a very opinionated person. Whatever he thought, whatever came to his mind, he was going to say it. He did not care who disagreed with him, what trouble he was going to get in for saying certain things. He was very much a tell it like it is type of person and someone who did not care about what other people were going to think of what he was saying. Now, because of this and because of the time frame, George was not shy of letting people know his opinions on the politics in 
Italy. Now we're going to get into that a little bit later and you'll understand more about that once we dive in a little deeper, but just keep that in mind as we travel through this case. So because George was very opinionated, it would often lead to disagreements with other members of the community and oftentimes George would get into verbal altercations, verbal disagreements, but other than that, George, Jenny, and their children were considered a relatively well-liked family in the community. So now I want us to jump to December 24th of 1945. This was Christmas Eve. Now on Christmas Eve, Joseph, who was the oldest of the Sauter children, like I mentioned, he had been drafted into the army, so he was not able to come home at this point. So that left George, Jenny, and their nine children to be celebrating Christmas Eve together. Now their oldest daughter was named Marion, and Marion was 19 at the time, and she had been working at the dime store in downtown Fayetteville. So after her shift on Christmas Eve, Marion came back to the house to hang out and spend time with her family and her siblings, and she brought home Christmas presents for her younger sisters. That was Martha, Jenny, and Betty. There also was the youngest of the Sauter children, which was Sylvia. However, Sylvia was so young at that point that Marion did not get her a gift because, again, she was in her infancy. Now, the kids were able, because it was Christmas Eve, to bend the rules a little bit out of their normal schedule, and they were able to stay up a little bit past their bedtime this night. The anticipation of Christmas the next day was keeping them up. They were so excited and really just wanting to spend more quality time together, which George and Jenny allowed them to do. Now, at approximately 11 p.m. is when the night started to die down, the children began going to sleep, and Jenny brought the youngest daughter, Sylvia, who was two years old, up to bed. Now, at approximately 12.30 a.m. on the morning of Christmas, Jenny was woken up to the sound of the phone ringing. Now, when Jenny heard this, she went downstairs to answer it, hoping that it wouldn't wake any of her other children up. When Jenny answered the phone, there was a woman on the other line, and according to Jenny, she did not recognize the woman's voice. And this woman had asked Jenny to speak to a person who Jenny did not know the name of. So she gets this phone call from someone she does not recognize and does not know the name of who she's asking to speak to, and Jenny tells the woman that she must have the wrong number. Now, according to Jenny, she said, that in the background of this phone call, she could hear laughter, she could hear glasses clinking. However, when she told this woman that she must have had the wrong number, Jenny said that this woman let out a very weird laugh. She started weirdly cackling before hanging up the phone. Now, at the time, Jenny didn't think much of this phone call, and so she hung up the phone and made her way back upstairs, noticing that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch in the living room, however decided to leave her there. Now, shortly after this phone call at approximately 1.30 a.m., Jenny was woken up again. However, this time, she was awoken to the smell of smoke. 
She got up and began walking around the second story of the home and noticed that in George's office, the electrical box had caught fire and the flames were spreading rapidly. Quickly, Jenny woke George up and were also able to wake up the four other children that were on the same story as them, which was Sylvia, the two-year-old, John and George Jr., as well as Marion, who had been sleeping on the living room couch. So they were able to grab four of their children and rush them out the door to escape. However, they still had five of the other kids who were sleeping in the attic. So even though this was a two-story home, they did have an attic, which is where the five other children slept. However, the flames were moving so rapidly that George and Jenny were not able to get up to their children because the flames had engulfed the staircase. So they began yelling out for their kids. They're yelling, they're yelling before running outside. And George decides that he is going to try and get his kids from the outside of the home. Now, while George is doing this, Jenny grabs the phone to dial to call the fire department. However, she quickly realizes that the phone line is dead. Now, she yells to Marion to run to the neighbor's house to have them call the fire department. So at this point, Marion had ran over to the neighbors. And around this same time, there was actually a driver on a nearby road who had also seen the flames and called the fire department for help. So it's not exactly certain which one of those calls made it to the fire department first. However, either way, the fire department was notified. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, like I mentioned, while Marion was off trying to get a hold of the fire department, George was trying to find alternate ways to get his kids out of the attic from the outside of the house. And his first idea was to grab the ladder. Now, typically, George kept his ladder on the side of the house at all times. That was where it went. That was where its spot was. However, in this specific instance, when George ran around the house to grab the ladder, he noticed that it was not 
not in his usual spot and that the ladder was nowhere to be found. Now, George realized very quickly that he did not have time to go around looking for this ladder. So his next option was to take the two trucks that he had for work and put them up against the house to try and stand on top of them with hopes that he would be able to get into the attic that way. However, again, when getting in the car and turning on the trucks, weirdly enough, the trucks would not turn on, which again was very strange because these trucks were working just the previous day. So now the ladder is gone, the trucks aren't working, and George did not know what to do at this point. So now the Sauter family members, George, Jenny, and the four children who were able to escape the home are now watching as flames are burning their house to the ground over the next 45 minutes, all while their five other children were stuck inside. Now, frustratingly enough, the fire department did not arrive to the home until 7 a.m. that morning. So again, now we are going for hours until the fire department gets there, hours until anyone is showing up to help this family. Now, if you're wondering why this was the case, the fire chief at the time claimed that he was not able to operate the fire truck on his own. He could not drive it himself. And along with that, he was very low staffed because it was Christmas Eve. So he was having trouble finding a team that was probably properly equipped to go out there. Now, something to know about fire departments at that time, again, we're looking at 1945 here. A lot of the fire departments at that time were ran by volunteer firefighters. So they weren't by firefighters that they had on staff that were ready to go at all times. So when this fire was reported, the fire chief then had to start calling around to his volunteer firefighters, which again, it was Christmas Eve, it was 1.30 in the morning, and it made it much more difficult than usual to find a group to go out there. However, again, that is a long time. Now, by the time that the fire department did go out to the solder house, which interestingly enough, one of the firefighters on this squad just so happened to be Jenny's brother, so these children's uncle. By the time the firefighters arrived, they spent only several hours maximum rummaging through all that was left of the home. Now, ultimately, it was determined that this fire was caused by an electrical issue and that the five children who were sleeping all sadly perished in the fire. Those children were 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 10-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 6-year-old Betty. Now here's where things get a little strange. After rummaging through the fire debris, the fire chief claimed that there was absolutely no remains found in the fire. I'm talking no bone fragments. I'm talking not a tooth, not a piece of cloth, nothing. There was nothing found in the debris. And the fire chief was chalking this up to be because the fire was so strong that it just completely consumed the children, leaving absolutely nothing behind. Now, from the very beginning, George and Jenny were not convinced that their children died in this fire, or they were convinced that if they did die in the fire, 
that this was not an accident from the very beginning. So let's just start there. George and Jenny have always been convinced that this was no accident, no matter how this played out. From the beginning, they were adamant on the fact that if their children had died in a fire, there would be some sort of evidence to prove it. There were five of them up in that attic. So to have no evidence out of the five of them that one of them or any of them, two of them, three of them, or all of them had died in that fire was very hard to believe. So because of this, George and Jenny start doing their own research. They start asking around and they go to a local crematorium. And it was there that George and Jenny learned that typically when a body is cremated, there are going to be bones or bone fragments that survive the fire. They were told that bones and bone fragments survive fires. The crematorium explained that when a body is cremated, you are exposing it to temperatures of up to 2000 degrees Fahrenheit for several hours. And even after that, even after the several hours is done, you still have to crush up the bone fragments. So it all turns to ash. So with this information that they were being told, George and Jenny really started to believe again, it only strengthened their initial belief that something wasn't right here. George really began to question whether or not this fire was accidental or caused by the electrical box. And a According to George, he claimed that while the house was burning down, he saw several lights on from the inside of the home while the fire was burning. So by George's logic, he's asking himself how, if this is an electrical issue, would lights still be able to be on while the house is burning down? And along with that, several months prior to this fire, George actually hired an electrician to come and look at the wiring and check out the electric in the house. And the electrician said that everything looked good and he gave the house a passing grade. So for George to be told that this was an electrical problem was very hard to believe. But beyond that, there was also something else that was highly looked over in this investigation, and that was when Jenny first woke up. As I mentioned in the beginning, she went to the phone to call the fire department, but the phone line was dead. Now, it wasn't until after the fire that Jenny learned that the phone wasn't just not working. The phone lines had actually been cut, which weirdly enough, police really didn't look into at all and brushed this off. Now, again, with all of this information, it really opened up the question of would there be someone out there that would intentionally want to start a fire in the solder home, someone who would intentionally want to hurt the solders. And this brings us to in the very beginning when I mentioned that George Sauter in particular was not necessarily the most well-liked person person in his community and he would tend to have issues with some of the other Italian immigrants that were in the neighborhood because of his outspoken political beliefs. 
Now, I want to kind of dive deeper into this a little bit so you have a better understanding. So around this time period is when a man named Benito Mussolini came into power in Italy. And George was very much against Mussolini and made it well known to the people around him. And one of the people that George let in on his beliefs was a man named Clato Genitolo, who went by CG. So that is just what we're going to call him. Now, CG was a local businessman, and he also just so happened to be the director of the Fayette County Bank. And he was also the employer of George Sauter at one point. Now, George had a mortgage out from the Fayette County Bank, which interestingly enough, had an insurance policy on it. And to make matters even more strange, CG was the one who would benefit. He was written on the insurance policy as the beneficiary if there were to be a case of a fire or a natural disaster on George Sauter's home. So CG was the benefactor of the home, which is pretty unusual because most banks will have the bank themselves as the benefactor and not one particular person. And again, it's very much a conflict of interest, especially because George Sauter knew this man personally. So just to clarify, you have this man, CG and George, who definitely don't get along. They butt heads a lot, mainly over political beliefs, political views. George is very outspoken. They don't agree on that. However, CG is the benefactor of George Sauter's home because George Sauter took out a mortgage at the Fayette County Bank where CG works. So that's where that all lines up. I know it's slightly confusing, but that's mainly because things like this wouldn't happen today. In today's world, this would be something that was illegal. You couldn't have a singular person holding financial interest in someone else's property in this type of regard. So if you're confused, that's probably why. I know I was confused too, but let's continue. So two months prior to this fire and without telling George, CG, the benefactor, He increased the insurance payout on the home. So again, he did this without telling George. The original payout for the home was $1,000 and CG increased it to $1,750, which is equivalent to about $27,000 in today's world. Now, not only that, about 60 days before the fire, CG Janitolo sends his friend who also just so happened to be an insurance broker. And this insurance broker was named Russell Long. So CG Janitolo sends Russell Long out to George Sauter's home and attempts to sell George Sauter life insurance for all of his children. Little strange. And George refuses this. He pretty much slams the door in Russell's face and tells him not to come back because he wasn't going to take out life insurance policies on his children. Now, in response to George denying this, CG Janitolo gets very, very angry. And he goes on to say some pretty intense threats to George. CG Janitolo tells George that his children are going to be destroyed and that his house is going to go up in smoke. He also says that George is going to have to pay for all of the bad things that he has said about Mussolini. 
So with this new information, with all of the things that we know now, it's really beginning to look like C.G. Janitolo could possibly be a person of interest. He could potentially at least have a motive for why he would want there to be a fire in the Sauter home. But before moving forward with C.G. Janitolo, police wanted to further investigate the cut phone wire. And when they do, this is really when they switch gears on this case and they end up arresting a man who was in possession of a block and tackle that belonged to George Sauter. So let me explain. If you don't know, because I did not, a block and tackle in its simplest form is a tool that is used to lift a heavy object. And the block and tackle that this man had, like I said, belonged to George. So they arrest this man for theft. And while he's being interviewed, he does admit that he stole the block and tackle. He admits that he stole it on the night of the fire. However, he does not admit to actually causing the fire. He actually denies being the cause of the fire. According to this man, he claims that he saw that there was a fire and thought that he could use it as a distraction to steal this block and tackle. Why he needed the block and tackle and why that was so important. I'm not entirely sure, but it seemed a little bit strange for someone to go all the way out to the solder property to steal a block and tackle specifically. So this then raised the question of did Janitolo have some part in this? Did CG Janitolo have a part in sending this man out to the house to get the block and tackle? Was this man the one that actually started the fire under the instruction of CG Janitolo? But either way, police ended up believing his story because he had the block and tackle and they ended up letting him go. But regardless, police don't question him or charge him any further and they end up letting this guy go. But along with that, police never brought in CG Janitolo at that point or any point after that to question him about his possible involvement. Now, at this point, George and Jenny were getting very frustrated. They felt like the investigation was going nowhere. It just wasn't moving at the speed that they wanted it to go. It didn't have that initiative that they wanted. So they began to investigate on their own. And a few years after the fire, George makes an interesting discovery. A few years after the fire, George went back to the property because he never rebuilt. He went back to the property where the dirt was and he began digging around the property and did an excavation. And when doing this, he actually was able to recover potential human bones. So he's digging up the property and he finds these potential human bones and he sends them to a Smithsonian research lab. And according to this lab, this lab confirmed that these bones were in fact human remains and human vertebrae and that it was potentially from a young man between the ages of 16 and 24 years old. Now, if this is true, the bones most likely belonged to George and Jenny's son, Maurice, who was 14 years old at the time of the fire. But the weird part about this was that there was no evidence of any charring 
on the bones. And this is something that is very unusual for someone who would have died in a fire. If someone gets burnt alive or burnt to death or dies in a fire, their bones are going to be charred more than likely. So again, at this point, it just brings up more answers to the police. And police now are starting to question if someone else's remains were placed in the home whose bones were not charred and were almost used as a cover-up. So did someone go in and place these bones that belonged to someone else to try and make it seem like it was the solder children so the investigation would stop, so no one would look into it any further? But regardless, throughout all of this, the Sodders really kept up their hope that their children were still alive. George and Jenny began seeking the public's help at this point to see if anyone else could help in the search of their children, and they actually put up a reward of $5,000, which then increased to $10,000, which was a pretty hefty reward at that time. And after offering this reward is when they do get some new information. After offering the reward, there was a woman named Ida Crutchfield who came forward with some information about the Sauter children. Now, according to Ida, she said that she ran a motel in Charleston, West Virginia, which was about 60 miles away from George and Jenny's home. According to Ida, she claimed that the week of the fire, four children were at her motel that she managed, accompanied by two men and two women. Ida described the adults as being from Italian descent and claimed that she tried to talk to the children but was shut down by the adults. She claimed that the party rented several rooms for the night but were gone by early the next morning. Now, Ida claimed that she did not know about the solder children or the fire at the time that this happened. However, she always remembered the interaction as being unsettling and thought that it was possible that those children were victims of an abduction. Now, unfortunately, because this was years later at this point, police really couldn't do much with this information because now we're looking at seven years after the fire and Ida did not come forward with this for those seven years. So whether or not it was the solder children, whether or not it was an abduction, there wasn't a lot that police could go off of at that point. But this was not the only witness that eventually came forward. Soon later, there was a woman who came forward claiming to have seen the Sauter children being pushed into the car and leaving the Sauter family home on the night of the fires. There was also a third woman who ran a diner between Charleston and Fayetteville and claimed to have seen the children at her diner on the night of the fires with a stranger. Now, police started to question that if these theories were true, it could potentially be painting a picture of what happened to the Sauter children if they did not die in that fire, meaning they could have gotten pushed into a car, gone to a diner, and then to a motel later that night. So it's giving police a potential timeline. However, again, sadly, this was so many years later and police weren't really able to do much with the information that they were given at that point. And so those tips fell flat. So now this brings us to 20 years after the fires. And at this point, George and Jenny are still on a mission to try and figure out what happened to their children. And this is when something 
very, very interesting takes place. In 1967, George and Jenny receive a strange letter that was mailed to them from Central City, Kentucky. Now, when they received the letter and opened it, inside was a photo of a man who appeared to be in his 30s and definitely resembled the Sauter children. Now, immediately when looking at this picture, George and Jenny automatically felt like like the man in the picture was their son. And more specifically, they felt like the man in the picture was one of their children, Lewis, who went missing on the night in the fire. Now, not only was there just a picture in this envelope, but on the back of the picture, there was also some handwriting. On the photo, it said, quote, Lewis Sauter, I love my brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys, a90132 or 35 end quote. Now, even though the photo said Lewis Sauter, which as you can imagine, George and Jenny are looking at this picture. They think it's their son, Lewis. They turn over the back of the picture. It says Lewis Sauter. It seemed like they were finally making progress in this case. It seemed like they were getting closer to finding their son. However, it was everything else in that writing after the name Lewis Sauter that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. No one knew who Frankie was. That was not one of Lewis's brothers. That was not not anyone that they knew, and no one knew who the ILIL boys were or what those numbers, the 90132 or 35, coded out to be. But with that, George and Jenny, as they're sitting here trying to decipher, they start to wonder if those numbers could represent an area code or a zip code. Because at that time, zip codes and area codes had recently been introduced. So it's fresh in their mind and they're thinking maybe this is a zip code. Now, unfortunately, when they did their research, they found that none of those numbers represented an area code in America. However, Ever, it did represent an area code in Italy. More specifically, an area called Palermo, Sicily. Now, Palermo also was the home base of La Costa Nostra, which is a crime organization. Now, this brought up the potential theory that the Sicilian mafia could have been involved in this case. The coincidences just seemed a little too close in this, and when Jenny and George received this letter, they were very reluctant to share this with the police. Once they started piecing together the information about Sicily, the area codes, everything like that. Once they started piecing it together, they were very hesitant to share it with the police because they felt like the police were not helping them. So instead, they decided to hire a private investigator to go down to Central City, Kentucky, which is where this letter was mailed out of, and see what they could find, see if they could see who sent the letter, see if they could figure it out. However, weirdly enough, when this private investigator went down to Central City, Kentucky, he was never seen nor heard from ever again. Now, whether this had to do with him seeing something or knowing something he wasn't supposed to know, whether this had to do with him taking the money that the Sauter family gave him and running away with it, we will never know. But what we do know is that no one 
heard from him after that. Now, because of this, the Sauter family decided that they were going to hire another private investigator. This private investigator's name was Oscar Tinsley, and he was investigating out of Fayetteville. And when he did, he uncovered a whole new theory that really shook everything in this case. Oscar really started to piece everything together. He was looking at the fact that George was threatened by CG Janitolo. He looked at the fact that the police never questioned Janitolo. Plus, he looked at the fact that the fire was never really investigated and the picture that was potentially Lewis, as well as the potential ties to the Sicilian mafia and no remains to prove that the children died in the fire. He was looking at everything. And something that Oscar also looked at was at the coroner's inquest that happened very early on in the investigation. Now, a coroner's inquest takes place when there are 12 people placed on a jury and the coroner walks them through the evidence that was found of the remains and the jury essentially concludes whether or not the death or the cause of death was accidental or murder. Now, this was very difficult to do and something that Oscar thoroughly questioned in this coroner's inquest was that how could there possibly even be a coroner's inquest to begin with when there were no remains ever found, when there was no evidence, period, ever found? What evidence could he have presented, the coroner, what evidence could the coroner presented to a jury without any possible evidence? But not only that, Beyond all of that, beyond the coroner's inquest, Oscar found out that one of the people on that 12-person jury of the coroner's inquest was C.G. Janitolo himself. And as you can imagine, the cause and manner of death of the five children that the jury concluded was accidental. Now, this definitely seems like some sort of conflict of interest. I don't know how it couldn't be when looking at this case. How this man, C.G. Janitolo, who knew this family personally, had all of these th threats against this family, how he could have possibly been on the jury for the coroner's inquest doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. But again, that is how it happened. Now, along with this, Oscar also uncovered that after the fire, the fire chief had spoke to the priest in Fayetteville and told the priest that there were remains at the scene. Now, remember, initially, the fire chief told George and Jenny there were no remains, but now he's going to the priest saying there were remains at the scene, but he buried the remains so they would not be discovered. Now, with this new information... Oscar takes this information to George. George then decides to go back to the house where the house was burnt down and dig up more and see if he could discover any more remains that this fire chief had been talking about. And when digging, George uncovers a small tin box. Now, inside of the tin box appeared to be an old rotting organ. So he opens up the tin box, there's an old rotting organ inside. Now, why there was an organ in a tin box to begin with is a question in and of itself. However, George sends this organ off to the lab. However, when the results returned, they discovered that the organ was actually a beef liver and that it had not been burnt. So not only was this not a human remain, but the remain itself, the organ itself had not been burnt in the fire. Now, as you're sitting here right now listening to me, you might have some some more questions than you did two minutes ago. And I understand because so did George and Jenny. 
nothing about this case was making sense. Nothing about what was happening was making sense. Nothing about why the fire chief would tell two different stories about there were remains, there weren't remains. Now there's an organ in a tin box. Nothing was making sense. So people really started viewing this case in one of two ways at this point. The first being that the fire chief was just trying to give the family a sense of closure, thinking that after years and years of George and Jenny suffering, that it would just be better to tell them like, listen, there were remains there and I just didn't want to tell you at the time because it was too painful. So I'm just going to give you this sense of closure. Or they looked at it as the fire chief trying to cover up what really happened to the children and get George and Jenny to stop looking for them. So people were starting to either view it in a way of like, oh, the fire chief is trying to do the right thing, give the family closure and give them a sense of peace, right? After all of these years, they're struggling, they're searching for answers. Let's just give them peace. Whereas the other half of people were thinking it wasn't necessarily peace that the fire chief was looking for. It was more so a deflection, a distraction. Let's just stop looking into this case any further. So people were really going one of two ways with this. Now, again, it's important to remember when looking back at the night of the fire that it took over seven hours hours for the fire department to arrive at the scene. And again, he claimed it was because of lack of manpower, which is why they could not get out there to stop the fire. But regardless, it did not matter because George and Jenny were determined to figure out what happened to their children. Now, when we look at the theory of the children went missing that night, they did not die in the fire. They went missing and survived the fire. Why did they never come forward? This is the question that gets risen. Why did they never come forward if they survived the fire? They've grown up years and years. Is it because they were brainwashed and never given the opportunity? Was it because they were held captive for so long and then killed later on? Again, just brings up more questions. But a lot of people out there believe that it is possible that the Sauter family and the Sauter children that disappeared that night wanted to disappear and never came forward because they never wanted to be found. So let's look at this as a new theory. This new theory hypothesizes that the five Sauter children started the fire intentionally and ran away with the hopes of never being found. Now, this theory in particular gets strengthened in 1967, which was the same year that the Sauters were sent that photo of Lewis Sauter. And this is when a woman in Texas sent a letter to George and Jenny Sauter. And in this letter, this woman claimed that she had recently been out at a bar and she had met a man and a woman. And she claimed that everyone was drinking, everyone was having a good time. And while everyone was drinking, after everyone had gotten comfortable and a little tipsy, this man and woman claimed that they themselves were Lewis and Marie Sauter. They claimed that they were the missing Sauter children, and the woman claimed that Lewis was definitely more talkative about this than Marie. She claimed that Marie didn't really speak about it, but Lewis had said that he had disappeared from the fire from the Sauter family home and that he was one of the missing Sauter children. Now, when comparing this theory to the theory that we talked about, that Lewis could have gone to Italy and been held in some mafia, the Sicilian mafia, based off of that picture with the postal code on it, it, police went back and realized that the postal code on the photo, they realized that not only did that area code exist in Palermo, Sicily, but it also existed in Mexico, which geographically is closer to Texas. So this brought up the question of was Lewis in Mexico with the rest of his siblings and then moved back into Texas? Again, it just brought up more and more 
theories. But when George and Jenny receive this letter, George decides that he is going to go and figure this out for himself. So him and his son-in-law travel to Texas together, specifically Houston, to sort all of this out. Now, when they arrive in Houston, George is unsuccessful in finding the actual woman who wrote him this letter. However, he was able to track down the man in the bar who claimed to be Lewis because apparently... This was not the only time that this man had claimed to be Lewis. He had been telling certain people here and there. So when George got there and began asking around, people knew who he was talking about and they were able to locate him to the address where this man lived. So Lewis goes up to this man's house where this man lives and knocked on the door. Now, coincidentally, this man also lived with his brother at the time. Now, when the man opens the door and George introduces himself and he explains the whole story, explains why he's there, the so-called Lewis claims that he had no idea what George was talking about. He was not Lewis. He was not George's son. George was not his father. And he adamantly denied either one of them, because remember, he lived with his brother, being his children. Now, this was very hard for George to hear, as you can imagine. And it was very hard for George to also accept, because not only is he looking at these men that have the similar features of his son, he's also been told information from other people that both of these boys have been claiming to be his children. They have been claiming to be the missing solder children, and now they're looking at him like he has three heads. Now, regardless, these two men continuously denied, saying that they weren't the solder children, they didn't know what he was talking about, and even though they denied it, George, up until the day he died, truly believed that those were his sons. Now, unfortunately, two years after his Texas trip, George Sauter passed away in 1969, and Jenny Sauter passed away 20 years later in 1989. Now, the youngest of the Sauter children and the youngest survivor of the fire named Sylvia died in April of 2021, and the mystery of what actually happened that night still remains. Now, again, like I said in the very beginning, I really don't know where I fall on this case. I have a lot of questions. I think that there are too many coincidences in this case for this to purely be a coincidence. I think that it is odd that CG Janitolo was never questioned. I also think it's odd that the phone wires were cut and no one was ever able to figure out who did that. I don't know if I fully believe that all of these people who are claiming to see these solder children were actually seeing the solder children themselves. I feel like it's a lot of potential witnesses, and I feel like if the children were being kidnapped, that is a very dangerous situation to be in, to be so open about it, and to be so openly bringing these children from place to place. I think the fact that George was receiving many, many threats from people in the community, I think that that is very telling. I think that there is potentially more people in that community who know what happened than they want to let on, considering George was not the most well-liked person in that community. I also think when looking at the children, something that I never saw that was never brought up in my research, however, it was something that I always questioned was... There was a window in the attic. That is how George was going to try and get his children out of the attic, is through this window. No one ever heard these children. These five children who were trapped up in the attic, there's fire, there's flames, there's smoke. 
no one ever hears them. There's no screaming. There's no yelling. The children aren't banging on the windows, which is horrible to think about. And if they were put in that situation and they were just engulfed in flames, it's most likely better that it was a painless and quick death. However, you would think that if they were awoken by the blaze and the flames, I'm sure that they had to have been woken up by the screaming of their parents from downstairs, trying to get everyone waking up, trying to get everyone out of the house. They're yelling for their children upstairs. And for no one to ever hear them is a little strange to me. It is raising, it does raise questions. Along with that, I do think it's interesting when George and Jenny went to go speak with the people at the crematorium, how they explained how the process works and how typically bones always survive in a fire. You know, when someone's getting cremated, they spend hours in the fire and their bones are still there at the end of it and they're charred, but they're still there. So for there to be no bone remains or no bone fragments from five children is just hard to believe at a certain point. So let me know what you guys think about this case. I'm very, very interested to know your thoughts. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you guys so much for joining in for another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every single Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.